0: Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free one year print and digital subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription, and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher. And Leslie Ann Brown's Decolonial Daughter Letters from a Black Woman to Her European Son. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up.
1: The first cut on this record has been cross format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Nages bagh and Aaron Merat. We spoke about the coronavirus crisis in Iran, what the COVID-19 pandemic means for the stability of the Iranian regime, how US sanctions have compounded the suffering of ordinary Iranians and what relations between China and Iran might look like after the end of the lockdown. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One you might like to check out is Bigger Than Bernie by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. Even though he will not be the presidential nominee, Bernie Sanders has reshaped the landscape of American politics. Where does the political revolution go next? In Bigger Than Bernie, activist writers Megan Day and Micah Utrecht give us an intimate map of the emerging socialist movement in America, profiling the grassroots organisers who are building something bigger and more ambitious than the career of one candidate, Bigger Than Bernie offers unmatched insights into the people behind the most unique campaign in modern American history, and a clear-eyed sense of how the movement can sustain itself for the long haul. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Nargis Bagjogli is Assistant Professor of Middle East Studies at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, and the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. Aaron Merat is an Iran analyst and a former Tehran correspondent for The Economist. Unfortunately, the sound quality of some of today's recording isn't brilliant. Uh, There were some connectivity issues and there's also a bit of background noise, but hopefully it's not too distracting. I began the interview by asking Nages why it is that Iran, with over 5,000 confirmed deaths and more than 80,000 cases of COVID-19, was hit harder and faster than any other country in the Middle East.
1: So one of the main reasons that Iran was hit so hard was that the first main reported cases of COVID-19 in Iran were in the city of Qom, which is right about an hour and a half outside of Tehran. It's the religious city, one of the most prominent religious cities in Iran. And there are a few reasons in which that sort of became the the main focal point of this virus at the beginning in Iran. One is that there are quite a few Chinese seminary students who study in qom Another reason is that because of the U.S. sanctions against Iran, Iran, when a lot of other countries were beginning to limit flights with China, Iran had to keep flights going for trade reasons and, and exchange reasons. And so when a lot of other countries were not running flights back and forth to China, Iran continued to do so further exposing the country to COVID-19 and really it's that the the intersections of Qom being a city that houses a lot of Chinese seminary students as well as there are Chinese workers in the city for different kinds of infrastructure projects so Mm -hmm. those the combination of the three together sort of made Qom be one of the early epicenters of the virus in Iran.
0: So my second question for you, Aaron. So in a lot of reporting of the crisis, we've seen Iranian health statistics on COVID-19 cases and casualties disputed, including by, at an earlier stage, by an official of the World Health Organization, who suggested that Iranian health ministry statistics were underestimating deaths by as much as a fifth. Do you think there's solid ground for doubting those statistics? Or do you think it to a large degree, perhaps reflects Western media's tendency to have a level of scepticism towards the Iranian government that we typically don't see them extend to governments in in Europe or, or North America, for instance.
2: I would say that the Iranian system is fundamentally untransparent, and particularly early on in the crisis, there may have been a political need when Iran was one of the few nations on earth who had been really badly affected to underplay the statistics. But I would say that every nation is probably at dampening the statistics in some way or another, or at least the vast majority of them. We've seen in Britain, care home statistics aren't included in the toll. Iran generally has quite a professionalised health system and has good relationships with multilateral health organisations, particularly the WHO. So I don't think there is a particular reason to think Iran more than any other comparable nation is fibbing.
0: Yeah, and I suppose we we, we will find when we have access to the, the excess death statistics that the death toll will be higher more or less everywhere, right?
1: And if I can just add quickly to that, and some of the conversations I've been having with both Ministry of Health officials in Iran as well as some physicians, what they're explaining is similar as Erin was saying to a lot of other countries, in which if let's say someone passes away at home or you know passes away in the waiting room of the emergency hospital before they get admitted, if they they're not being tested, so they are not being included in the official statistic that they're releasing on a daily basis for this. And that's similar to what's going on in a lot of places right now, too. There was actually a bit of a conversation and debate about this just a couple of days ago in Iran, where that notion came out into the public, too, about like how wide is testing and then how does that fit into the, the official both contagion, you know, the, the amount of people that are being have the COVID-19 and the people who are dying from it.
0: How would you characterize the difference between the early stage of the outbreak in Iran and, and, and where we are now in terms of the government's response?
1: I think what's really fascinating to think about when it comes to thinking about what's been going on in Iran since mid-February with COVID-19 is that when this outbreak started to be reported on, both internally and internationally, because at that point the virus had just been in China and Iran, or at least publicly in China and Iran, the kind of both analysis and media attention was really quite incredible to watch, and then to see how it shifted once the virus jumped to Italy and and Western Europe and North America. Within Iran, I think, similar to how we saw other countries react, they really were quite slow to react, didn't quite know what was necessary they may have known what was necessary because of what had been happening in China but they didn't quite know how to implement it in a way that would be effective and then there was this other component to this in, in the case of Iran in which even though there were sectors of society and and sectors of experts that were saying that the country needed to go on full lockdown and quarantine within the Rouhani government, they were making a big point about the fact that they couldn't actually shut down the whole country because the economic situation was, is so bad due to the sanctions and the fact that Iran has been uh, isolated, especially in its ability to export oil. So that is something that has really been a, a big part of the backdrop to all of the decisions that they've been making. Now, layered on top of that is that there's extreme amounts of division within the political sphere in Iran internally. So not even just those who are opposition to the Islamic Republic, but even within the Islamic Republic itself. So the Rouhani government was making certain decisions on a daily basis, the hardliners were constantly coming out and saying that the decisions that they were making were bad, and then they would sort of it's in in a similar way that we see, for example, since I'm in the state it's a similar way that we see between the democrats and the republicans they just are constantly um, going at each other's decisions when it comes to something like this a similar dynamic exists in iran and then layered on top of that is that because of the way in which this had hit iran first before it hit a lot of other countries especially in western europe and the u.s meant that another layer of media attention was on iran based on this maximum pressure policy that the trump administration has put in since trump has come out is you know, since he left the Iran deal. And that means that there's been a huge amount of analysis about the way in which Iran was handling this crisis, which was all baked into the regime is about to fall, this is going to push the regime over, it's about to collapse. So at the beginning, especially the first month and a half, it was really difficult to sparse out that line of sort of ideological and political desires from certain elements both within the US and, and elsewhere about what should or is pos- potentially happening in Iran versus what was actually happening on a public health basis. And as Aaron is saying, within Iran you, you have the public health sector in Iran is not only extremely professionalized but has been very effective in multiple campaigns in the past 40 years, from reducing the number of birth. Uh, you know, when, when there was a huge population boom in Iran in the 1980s, they actually implemented very effective family planning. That Though they were very late in responding to the AIDS pandemic, they then eventually implemented very effective ways of dealing with AIDS outbreak. And so the public health sector functions quite well in Iran, actually. And so layered on top of what they were doing were all of these other political considerations and the international politics that were going on. And
0: um, on the question of of sanctions, I mean, how legitimate do you think it is for the government to point to the sanctions as a a cause for for failings in, in the Iranian government's response? And could you perhaps just say something on the scale of the sanctions at this point?
2: Yeah, I do think that Tehran has a legitimate reason to point the finger at sanctions you need liquidity essentially to fight this crisis. You need to buy in reagents, you need to roll out testing, uh, you need to expand hospital facilities, and you need cash to do this. You also need to import a lot of pharmaceuticals and reagents, which Iran can't produce domestically, and that requires intermediary banks to do that. Officially, humanitarian supplies are excluded from US sanctions. However, the entire global financial system stays away from Iran because of the large fines, which ran into hundreds of millions of dollars per institution for violating sanctions. So, without banks, you're you're isolated economically, whether or not there is a um, dispensation in the in the sanctions regime for humanitarian goods. Just broadly on the sanctions, because a lot of people talk about sanctions, about Iran, and I often think that they don't quite understand how incredibly draconian they are. So the US hasn't so much sanctioned Iran as sanctioned any corporate entity or individual trading with Iran. That's what I mean by when I say extraterritorial sanctions. So because the US dollar is a reserve currency for the planet you need to go through clearing houses in new york even if you're exchanging between two nations which are not american so iran and china if it's exchanging in dollars it needs to go through western clearing houses and this may be breaking down over the next decades as russia and china try and find innovative ways around avoiding these clearance houses, for example, trading in gold and and also setting up systems by which the central banks kind of protect financial channels between global economies in Iran. But without sanctions relief, Iran's ability to fight this is extremely curtailed. And there's lots of silly games going on, whereby America is offering direct financial assistance, but then blocking IMF, loans to Iran. And it's basically playing politics because the US knows full well that Iran would not be able to accept, for domestic political reasons, credit from the US directly. There, there, there is some evidence that the EU is not playing ball with the American sanctions as it was over previous months and years. There have been reports that Germany... Is allowing sanctioned Iranian banks, American sanctioned Iranian banks, to operate in its territory. And the Instex financial corridor from Switzerland to Iran, which the uh, European Union established in order to circumvent American sanctions and keep the JCPOA Iran deal together after America pulled out, has successfully transacted humanitarian transactions to Tehran. So there could be some scope for the Covid virus putting some blue water metaphorically rather than literally between the United States and Europe vis-a-vis their respective Iran policies.
1: The only thing that I would add to that is that in addition to what Aaron mentioned about the the financial system being sanctioned, it's also shipping companies. So even though, again, there's supposed to be these provisions for humanitarian aid to get through, not only can Iranian companies and the Iranian state not pay for it because the financial, the banking systems have been sanctioned, but also no international. National shipping company is able to ship these things to Iran. Insurers won't insure. So it's again, it's like it's multi-leveled, and it it is extremely draconian the types of sanctions that the Trump administration has put on in, in this latest round against Iran.
0: There's a lot of talk about what this all means in terms of the, the US vis-a-vis China coming out of you know the height of the crisis and, and what the world will look like at that point and whether we may see a, a sort of step forward in, in terms of China's increasing prominence on the international stage. I mean, is there a sense, do you think in, in, in DC, the, the crisis may lead to that sort of dynamic that Aaron is talking about, whereas where there's an increasing divergence so, uh, between the EU and the US and an increasing tilt towards China, also because of things like you know Donald Trump's announcement of not continuing to fund the WHO?
1: There could be. You know, as, uh, since COVID-19 in Iran, there's also been this uh, parallel projected or public kind of love fest, if you will, between the officials in Iran, uh, especially in the Rouhani government and the Chinese. You know, Iran has, in the past couple of months, projected China's flag onto one of the main monuments in Tehran, the Freedom Tower Azadi. They've also, China has been sent sending equipment to Iran, testing kits, ventilators, provisions to create field hospitals and things like that in a similar way that China is doing in, in other parts of Europe as well. And some within Iran are saying that these aren't enough, or some are saying that the testing kits don't work, similar things that we're hearing in other places. But what's really important is that both sides, both within Iran, both in the Iranian government and the, and the Chinese, they're making a really big concerted effort to display this sort of increased solidarity, if you will, vis-a-vis the United States, because it's happening in tandem with any time that the U.S. imposes more and more sanctions throughout this pandemic on Iran as it's been doing. So as Iran is asking in the international community to, to suspend sanctions during this time, the U.S. imposes new sanctions and then China and Iran sort of then bring out this public PR that they're doing. Whether that means that there's actually going to be a shift in that direction after all of this is over... I think that there is a possibility, but I don't know how quickly it will happen. I think right now everything is in such flux and it's really difficult to think about how things will exactly land, depending on how long this goes on, what the many different ramifications are in both domestic and international politics. But what the Iranian side is trying to do is trying to really highlight this wedge between the U.S. and the rest of the world, whether it's vis-a-vis China or right now, as Aaron was saying, between Iran and the EU. And especially as the U.S. is pulled out of its, or, you know, right now suspending with, with the World Health Organization, uh, Zadif, uh, the foreign minister of Iran, just tweeted again about that, um, saying that now the world is seeing the bullying tactics that the U.S. has always been doing with Iran. So Iran is also using it as a potential scare tactic to the West of saying, if this continues, if this if the West doesn't doesn't want to be partners with us, then that's the possible. You know, our possibility is we can turn east. So I think that they're using it strategically as well.
0: And do you think that reflects a genuine belief on the part of the regime that their future lies in a fairly tight alliance with with China, or is it that China gives Iran the space in which to perhaps play off different powers against each other to to give Iran more breathing room?
1: I think right now it's allowing more breathing room, but I think also within some hardline political factions in Iran, they're also they have been in the past couple of weeks extremely critical of the Chinese as well. So it, it's it's both playing in domestically in different ways. The hardliners in Iran are attacking the government for trying to go towards China. So there's a domestic battle going on that really is much more to do with who's in power internally. But then there is also this external component that I was just talking about, which allows them to try to have a little bit of breathing room to play these sides against each other.
2: It may be worth adding that um, despite the common interests of the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians to break down the hegemony of the dollar and therefore um, free themselves from US financial war using the dollar as a reserve currency to hit Chinese tech companies, Russian oil companies, the entire Iranian economy with sanctions. These countries also have fundamental differences as well. A resurgent Iran is not in the Russian and Chinese interests. At the moment, China has a huge monopoly in Iran for dumping a lot of its a lot of its goods, and Russia is obviously a gas giant, and it likes to keep Iran's Gulf gas assets out of a global economy, so it can have more weight itself. So it's a balancing act between working against the US, but also I don't think Iran can expect to be saved from its current economic maelstrom from Beijing or
0: Moscow. In terms of the overall stability of the regime in Iran, so, I mean, obviously the, the the coronavirus crisis followed the anti-government protests that we saw in January in in the wake of the downing of the Ukrainian airliner by the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps following the assassination of, of Qasem Soleimani. Do you think the crisis will lead to further erosion of the government's support base or, or, or is there a, a kind of a, a rallying around the flag effect that we've we've perhaps seen in other other countries going on?
2: I think that the proxy war being fought between the US and Iran in Iraq at the moment, General Suleimani was just one, was just the highest profile assassination of several tit-for-tat hits using Ketaba Hezbollah, which is an Iranian-backed militia of Arab uh, militiamen, which goes back to the early days of the US occupation of Iraq. They've been successfully striking and also killing U.S. and British soldiers. And the retaliations from the U.S. have been bombing Kataba Hezbollah and also other Iranian-supported paramilitaries. There's also, uh, this Cold War has also extended, according to some un- uncorroborated sources, to Afghanistan. There were some reports of a very sophisticated U.S. aircraft being shot down. It may or may not have had the CIA Iran chief inside the plane so this cold war is being fought on several fronts also in the gulf as well harassment of us naval vessels by the irgc this has the effect of galvanizing the array of the sort of regimes core base and uh, iran is a an extremely nationalistic country, and even Iranians who may or may not support the regime were outraged at the assassination of its most famous general, who, it should be said, is seen in Iran by the majority of Iranians as a, a protector of Iran because of the rout of Mosul and almost Baghdad by the Islamic State. So, In terms of the legitimacy of the government, I think whether or not the regime is going to fall or not has been predicted throughout the Islamic Republic's history, and I wouldn't bet on it.
1: I, I would agree with everything that, that Aaron said, and, and I would just add to it that the um, there's a polling agency that's pretty well respected within Iran, the Iranian Students Polling Agency. They put out a poll or they put out results that they got from a poll that they conducted over the past few weeks in Iran, in which they showed that prior to mid-March over 60% of Iranians were really unhappy with the way that their government was handling the response to COVID-19. And then by the end of March, that Number had dropped to a little bit above 45 percent. That almost 15 to 20 percent drop point drop is quite significant in such a short period of time, but that's really due, I think, to the fact that prior to mid March, so much of the focus again had been on how Iran was mismanaging this, and then once this pandemic spread. And other countries especially. And I think it's so important here that it's especially Western European countries and the US that have failed at containing this virus in the ways that they've had, that it 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 sort of is like you've for for a lot of countries, but especially for a place like Iran in which the West has been sort of held up as the example of the types of transparent governments that you should be striving for, these have sort of this pandemic has has made them all, Naked in a way, and has shown all the cracks in these systems. And so, what that that in in a way, even though there are so many Iranians within the country who are very fed up with a lot of the the things that the that the Islamic Republic has done over the past few years, especially with the way that they repressed the most recent nationwide protests in November of 2019, still it needs to be sort of understood in this broader focus that both Aaron was saying as far as the Cold War that's going on with Iran and and the US and Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region, but also in this other dynamic which is that Iran and the Islamic Republic specifically feel very much that they are in this existential war with the US and in many ways the US's policy, even though they're not always saying outright is regime change on Iran. So The Islamic Republic sometimes is in the past year and, and a half that this policy has been in place has acted very poorly like in the clampdown to the protests in November of 2019 which angered people a lot and again with the downing of the airline, a Ukrainian airliner in January but other times it has been uh, they've been able to to turn it into their favor like when they when the US assassinated Sode Mani and then now what's interesting that I'm following quite a bit is that as it's been shown that Western European countries and, North and the U.S. have been so bad at handling this. What is starting to happen in Iran now is that the IRGC and their paramilitary forces, especially the Basij paramilitary, and then they're bringing in some of the Iraqi paramilitary forces as well, within the country, they are now organizing on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood basis, sending their young the young men in these organizations to go out from morning to night to disinfect areas, uh, both public and apartment buildings and, and all these other places around the country and then now and Ramadan is starting pretty soon they're also organizing and giving out food to those who are you know who who might need food they're they're trying to lend sort of support now they're obviously doing this as a public relations ploy here but they're I think it's important to watch things like this because they are doing it very much vis a vis and on what vis a vis to what's going on in the West and in the media sphere. The way that they're handling all of this is that they are showing how they are women in these paramilitary groups are sewing masks for hospitals and for the general public, and the men are gathering food and spreading it around. And then within those memes, side by side, are pictures of nurses in in New York City who have to wear trash bags and don't have PPE equipment to wear and things like that. And so they're really sort of utilizing these side by side in order to, again, be able to stave off any sort of of radical threat to their power in this environment.
0: Just going back to the sanctions for a moment, would you say, no, I guess, that the, that the US administration is, is quite straightforwardly and, and cynically using the situation in order to, as Aaron says, it's, it's perhaps not very likely, but in order to, to attempt to topple the regime? Or do, or do you think it's more complicated than that?
1: No, I mean, I think that the Trump administration and the folks who work on Iran, either within the Trump administration or who orbit the Trump administration who work on Iran, their belief is that the Islamic Republic is on the verge of collapse. And so for them, they think that this is not the time at all to be easing sanctions because why would you do that if the Islamic Republic is about to, to you know, like finally it's about to go after 40 years. But again, as Aaron has been saying, I mean, I remember hearing that the Islamic Republic is about to collapse since I was a teenager. So it's one of those things where if you even do like a precursory Google search, you're going to see so many articles about the Islamic Republic. It's on the you know, it's not going to survive. I'm doing a research project now that's looking at the hostage crisis from 1979 and 80. And it's incredible to me how much the news reports of that time are also just laden with the Islamic Republic is going to collapse from as far back as November of 1979. But in this, in this current circumstance, that's what the folks around the Trump administration are hoping for. And that's why they're really sort of putting the gas pedal to the, the sanctions and not trying to, to ease it at all.
0: And um, Aaron, is, is, I mean, do you see any cause for optimism in, in terms of any possibility of sanctions being alleviated? You know, is, is, is there any kind of concession that the Iranians could make that would lead the Americans to, yeah, you know, take their foot off people's necks uh, in this regard?
2: In theory, yes. It depends on what part of the political cycle we are in in, in America and in Iran for breakthroughs to happen. But essentially, Trump is extremely transactional and he seems to be animated mostly by wanting to get a deal with Iran which is quote-unquote better than Obama's. And there's a lot which I believe the national security establishment in Iran would be happy to to jettison in order to get sanctions, a deal which will relieve them of sanctions. For example, essentially demarcating spheres of influence whereby Iran respects unofficially the Israeli border in Syria. They will have a hand with the US as they do in Iraq, perhaps. I can imagine a situation where Iran puts limits on its ballistic missile program and essentially agreeing to a deal which was more comprehensive than the Obama deal, which was very deliberately negotiated to only be about the nuclear file. And I think that Uh, As Nagras keeps saying, Iran's beef with the US is so multi-layered, you do need a comprehensive deal. And I could imagine something which the US and Iran could agree to, which may look like concessions on both sides, but both sides would be very happy to live with because they can play to their respective domestic audiences and claim it as a win. The current status quo is so bad for US foreign policy objectives and the lifeblood of the Iranian economy, the middle classes, the working classes as well, who came out into the streets in November for the first time since the establishment of the Islamic Republic uh, in huge numbers, that there will have to be a shift. And if Trump gets, uh, perversely, I can imagine some planners in Iran hoping Trump does get re-elected in order to push this through, because if you have a more neoliberal democrat hawky type president you may that opportunity may become foreclosed yeah
1: the only thing I would sort of add to that is that another you know the pessimistic side of that coin is that there are folks both within the U.S. as well as Israel their view of the military uh, might or the military sort of advancements that Iran has made over the past few years, and then especially the the types of alliances it's been able to build across the region, they see that as being fundamentally unacceptable because it it challenges the U.S. presence in the region, and it, it also is the first for military force that can. Cause real damage within Israeli homeland if it's if not, you know if sort of it comes to that space which is the missiles that Hezbollah has. So I think that there are and and we I see this and you know I don't know if Aaron would agree with me or not, but I see this a lot more in, in the types of stances that people like Pompeo may take in that they are they have this extremely ideological look on Iran that comes to a point where I'm not sure if they are willing to accept anything but. Some kind of surrender from Iran. And what Trump's position has done, or what his administration's policies towards Iran have done in the past year and a half, is that they have also then elevated those elements within the Revolutionary Guard in Iran and within the political establishment in Iran that sort of hold similar ideological views against the U.S. and Israel, but but also more importantly, it's empowered those who view international politics purely through a lens of war and battlefields politics. And so because of that, if this current trend continues, I think it could be a very dangerous one for all sides because right now on the Iranian end, the decision seems to be solidifying that they and I don't think this is on rhetoric anymore. They've been, the rhetoric of the U.S. needs to get out of the region has been around for a long time, but I... Especially with the assassination of Soleimani and the way that the Trump administration continues to corner Iran in these past few months, I think it's gone a little bit beyond rhetoric now. And there's a deep belief within certain sectors of the Revolutionary Guard who are much more willing to be have have a certain kind of detente with the U.S. uh, in the region with the JCPOA are now coming to this conclusion that with the US and the region, the US will never want Iran to sort of stand on its feet and be a sovereign nation. It always wants it on its knees.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.